Welcome everyone to another episode of the Product Lead Podcast. Today we have some serious brain power as for our guest, uh, Mark Roberge, senior lecturer at the Harvard Business School and currently also a managing director at Stage Two Capital. How are you, Mark? Good, Pierce. How are you? I'm doing great. So, as we were uh, setting up this podcast episode, you were looking through topics and. Uh, there's this particular blog post that you wrote about having a playbook for PLG startups. Could you like tell me more about it? Yeah, sure. Let me talk to you a little bit about the origination for a second, because mm-hmm. I'm pretty excited about product-led growth as I think a lot of the, um, especially the software startup ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I, I do think it has like the same disruptive business model potential that SaaS had. At the beginning part of the century, which yep. is, it's not as pervasive, but like it for the categories where it applies, and that's another discussion. Is like where does it apply and where is it not? Mm-hmm. And I've recently wrote about that. Like, I do think it's going to dominate the attackers in the next five or ten years. But so, where did my kind of my ideologies come from? So, mm-hmm. I spent about twenty years as an entrepreneur. The last startup I did was HubSpot. Huh. There are four of us that group got together at MIT and. Darmesh and Brian Halligan co-founded it. And then we I was the fourth employee to join. And my role as chief revenue officer, which I did scale the go-to-market through the IPO. Mm-hmm. And during that journey, some of you who know HubSpot, we started as a marketing software company and then we moved into the CRM space. Yeah. And when we moved in the CRM space, we took a product-led growth approach. So I actually hired Brian Balfour, who who founded the Reforge School since then, is probably mm-hmm. the best growth school in the in the world and just learned a lot of stuff from him and kind of watched watch how that was a good growth cadence yeah. was operated. And then, you know, then this whole PLG movement continued to grow. And uh-huh. I actually started a class three years ago at Harvard Business. I'm a as you said, I'm a professor at Harvard Business School. And I, I started a class on growth and I brought in like the growth leaders from from Facebook, from from LinkedIn, from Pinterest, from Shopify, from lift from uh-huh. Brown Belfour, you know, a lot of people and just kind of saw the patterns. And that that's really where the blog post originates from is just the patterns that I've seen from the best growth organizations in the world. Uh-huh. And a lot of those are actually on the consumer side, but I do think that they create the blueprint for the B2B side. Because you've already seen yeah, it in Lyft sure. and Shopify where they have those B2B constructs. So some of it is just the way it it's set up and some of it's the way that it the team operates. And I'll just kind of talk, I'll make two comments on each of those and you can tell us where you want to go, Piers. Yeah, sure. First, like how the team is set up. And this is something that most of the B2B organizations are not doing. And mm-hmm. I do believe that those that adopt it will create a competitive advantage. And that is the best-in-class teams have set up a cross-functional team of marketing plus product and put it under product. And that's not what the new PLG companies are doing. They're, they're creating a, a growth team that is a little more like marketing and sales-oriented yeah. and only putting it under marketing without any product engineers. And what that does is it restricts the footprint of access and control of the growth team to simply how you generate traffic and users and not how you move users through 
the usage funnel yeah. through retention, through virality, et cetera. So it puts folks at a pretty competitive, competitive disadvantage. The other thing is like how these teams think about experimentation. Yeah. And the best growth teams have set themselves up to run. I mean, depending on the size, if it was, if it was a startup, like a seed fund startup, they'd be running like a dozen startups a week. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like, and they also invest a lot of engineering in helping the organization set up experiments, like okay. half of their engineering work. So those are some of the trends that like, I was kind of shocked by that, like uh, every single top performing growth team had and very few of the new PLG companies I've adopted. And when it comes to PLG, it needs to be very, in, I mean, engineering needs to be very involved as you have to make like the tweaking cycle very tight because you're being led by your product. Instead, others are doing it like pretty much still sales-led. So yeah, I actually read through the article that uh, you wrote and anything new in 2022 that may have changed things up a bit or is the trend still continuing? We're still so early. We're still so early. I mean, I've done some thinking on like the categories that Mm -hmm. it applies to. You know, there's a couple factors in there because I don't think it applies to as many factors as SaaS did. You know, like, uh-huh. like Workday disrupted the large HR software ecosystem mm-hmm. with SaaS. And I don't think a PLG company will disrupt like a major like central repository of HR stuff. Mm-hmm. But if the category has a low time and effort to retainable value use case, uh-huh. you know, like like Calendly's one of the up and comers that done well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dropbox is one of the first ones that did it. Like Zoom and Elastian and Asana. These are all, you know, tools that you could set up and start seeing value within minutes. Yeah. And that true. value is sort of ongoing, right? Yeah. Single player mode helps a lot. Time to value is like real yeah. single player the single mode. player mode helps a lot if you could like extract value from it by yourself. It doesn't have to be the case. Like Slack really wasn't single player mode at all. Uh-huh. But it helps. And honestly, like a mature category helps too. What do you mean? Like if you're trying to create a new category, if you're trying to create a new category of the way things should be done, it's more difficult to make PLG work because essentially you have to like get people to adopt this thing without talking to anyone. So if you want to get someone to adopt something without talking to someone, you have to be able to communicate it in like 30 seconds and like basically the size of a social media ad. It's very hard to like create a category in that context versus if there's an existing category, uh-huh. you know, that has been established the last few years that it's people are adopting the top providers mm-hmm. and both of those providers are not PLG. That's a huge opportunity for PLG to come in because everyone knows what the category mm-hmm. is. It's easier to communicate what, what the product is because people understand it. Uh-huh. And it's really hard for the the incumbents, the current players who are not PLG to change to PLG. That is very hard. It's like the on-premise software companies from the 80s and 90s trying to move to SaaS. Like yeah. almost nobody's, nobody pulled that off. <laughs> and we can go into the details of why that's hard because I've, uh-huh. I've actually gone through that experience. So it's not necessarily always good to have almost like zero competition in a particular category if, if that particular category is something that you still have to introduce people, right? Is that what you're saying? Uh, did I get you correctly? Yeah. I mean, I think in general entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. if you're the category, the first category mover, that's interesting. 
that's certainly not a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Like you get to create the space. Mm -hmm. I think the, in general, people are overly confident in how much of an advantage a first mover gives you. There's a lot of research on that. Mm-hmm. If you look across like who eventually won in search engines, who eventually won in PCs, who eventually run won in operating systems, mm-hmm. they were not first movers. <laughs> you know, they were yeah, yeah. So so there's just like there, there's not as much first mover advantage as you think. But I don't think it hurts to be a first mover in a category. And you know, there are some arguments out there that like category creation has become such a an important part of entrepreneurship that like there's an even bigger advantage to being the first one out there to define the space and associate your brand with it. Now, a lot of investors and entrepreneurs say competition is good. Yeah. I think that's fine. Like, I don't really see that as often unless you have like a really unique differentiation that has a sustainable mode around it and you're going to be the clear winner. I mean, I'd rather just like crush a category with no competition, but (laughs) whatever. I mean, they'll help evangelize it. But what I'm saying here relative to product-led growth peers is if I had to choose between a product-led growth company that was trying to create a new category Uh and a product-led growth company that was trying to disrupt an established category that does not have a product-led growth player, Mm -hmm. I would choose the latter if everything else was equal. Oh, that's new insight for me. Today's episode is brought to you by productled.com. As the founder of the business, it is our mission at ProductLed to help you build a world-class product-led business. That is honestly what gets me excited. I want to help you. And that's one of the reasons why we are so committed to providing you a ton of free resources like this podcast to arm you with all the tools, strategies, and tactics you need to build and grow a successful product-led business. But sometimes just listening to podcasts, reading articles, and talking to colleagues about product-led growth doesn't quite cut it. It feels like you're just learning a bunch of random tactics that don't quite add up to a holistic strategy. Now, if you can relate, I'd highly recommend checking out our upcoming product-led growth program. In this program, we will actually help you master product-led growth, understand the holistic strategy behind it, and ultimately help you create a product experience that leaves your users wanting to come back for more and we will give you all the tools, templates, and feedback you need to make it happen. So if that's interesting to you, you can learn more and register at productled.com. And now let's get back to the episode. So I was yeah reading through the blog article and one thing came up, like uh, typically growth teams would only have one North Star metric and it can evolve over time for sure. So you're saying that there should be like four of them in a specific order could you like Mm -hmm. tell us more about it yeah pretty much like and i've done this with i don't know 80 startups probably maybe a little more Mm -hmm. and yeah they all kind of took the same pattern of how that north star metric evolves and that's one kind of best practice that these plg companies do do Mm -hmm. is they do define for the entire growth organization and sometimes the whole company a single metric to revolve around now Mm -hmm. The pothole there that unfortunately most startups fall into, I would guess probably 80% of the startups fall into this, is their first North Star metric is revenue. Like, let's get to a million in revenue. That's really bad, especially for a PLG company. It's just like, it sets the focus of the organization 
in the wrong spot. And what you end up with is like a million or two in revenue a year or two later and like 50% churn and very little usage of the product. In fact, the organization is probably optimized around the RON market in that case. And that happens a lot. So in, I love PLG because it, it tends to focus the organization on usage first as opposed yeah. to revenue. So we're already in a nice little advantage relative to like many of the mm -hmm. startup peers. So the four metrics that it flows through is number one, Getting enough traffic and users to experiment with. That's the first yep. milestone. And that's not trivial. I mean, that's where we lean into paid marketing and that kind of stuff. And you can do it in a non-scalable way. I don't care if CAC is a lot. As long as you can if you can raise some venture capital or have access to capital, you can absorb pretty high CACs and you know to mm -hmm. acquire those users. If they have to be scrapped, you've got to find other ways to do it. But we need we need, I don't know, at least a couple dozen users a week to mm -hmm. experiment with, right? Hopefully we get more than that, 50 to 100, but yeah. that's step number one. Step number two is to solve for weekly active user attention, free mm -hmm. user attention, right? So, so you bring in like 50 customers, 50 new users this week. Yeah. Next week, how many still use the product? The week after that, how many people use the product? The week after that, how many people use the product? If that, you know, this is Brian Balfour's work from Reforge. If that, mm -hmm. if that goes to zero, <laughs> Yeah, there's no product or business. Like you're, yeah. you're always trying to refill your user funnel because you're uh -huh. losing your, eventually all of your user cohorts go to zero. So to Brian's credit, that needs to level off somewhere. And at least it needs to level off as high as possible. I mean, does it level off at 20% uh, two months later or 50% or 80%? Uh -huh. Obviously the higher, the better. So metric number two is free user attention. So that's huge. I would say that's the hardest one, honestly. I think free user attention is where, I don't know, three quarters of the businesses fail. And if you get it, uh -huh. your like, likelihood of success is really high. After you've got that, the third metric is, is CAC. Mm -hmm. It's being able to generate those free users with a low enough cost to create a business. Right. right? So it's like after step two, you've got a bunch of users you're driving and you're forcing them in there at all costs. And you, you've proven that, like, if you force 50 of them in there, they're going to, a lot of them stick around. Uh -huh. But now, like, we can't afford to spend $1,000 a user if, like, we're going to sell this thing for 10 bucks a month. So we have to find some scalable, uh -huh. more cost-effective ways to generate those users. And at this point, that's when things like creating a content marketing strategy where mm -hmm. it comes into play. Get it working on our viral coefficient and the virality of the product. Mm -hmm. In some situations, like... Um, Influencer marketing would pop up here, depending on like the type of product it is and and the who we're targeting. Those are the three most common ones, I would say: content marketing, influencer marketing, and virality. To check mm -hmm. off that box. And so now, if we get the CAC in a good spot, let's say now we're we've we used to acquire users for like two hundred bucks a user, a free user, yeah. and that was never going to work as a business. And through a lot of experimentation, we've gotten that down to 10. And this is actually a real story with the HubSpot CRM. When we first started out and we were forcing users in through paid, mm -hmm. our opening costs per free user was $150. And after a month of experimentation, I think we did about 27 experiments in that month. We got it down to 12, $12. That's huge. And that, that's where it works, right? So mm -hmm. that's, that's what a good growth team does. Like that's yeah, yeah. the impact a good growth team would do. And so now, now you're sitting here after those three major North stars is now you're, 
you're sending like dozens of users in every week, maybe even more. They're coming in at a cheap price. You get them for 10 bucks a user. Mm. And a lot of them are retaining and using the product forever. Wow. That's a great foundation for business. Uh The final step is monetization. And the metric is LTV. Right. So the final step is like, okay, now that we got these people coming in, they're coming in cheap, we get them to stick around. Now we have to choose what's the tier by which we're going to monetize them. Like, what are they going to hit? Is it a user count? Is it gigabytes? Is it like, uh-huh. is it number of contacts? Is it like the number of transactions, whatever. And that obviously changes by business, but that's the fourth thing we work on is make sure the LTV works mm-hmm. and the LTV to CAC ratio works. I see. That sounds like a lot of things that you have to balance. Uh-huh. But to contrast appears, what most startups do is they start yeah. right off on the monetization. Yeah. And they end up, it's just really messy. Like you, they, mm-hmm. they end up with like, they lose the shot of PLG, they optimize around the Moran market. I don't know. It's just, they can't get the CAC to work. Like it's just not the right thing to do first. I see. So, hence it's uh, your title for the article was a playbook for uh, startups. There's one more thing that actually stood out to me was that I actually have zero experience running a business, but I'd like to think I have a good brain. So wouldn't like uniting marketing and product teams and both into growth be sort of like counterintuitive because that'll mean that your team would be like mostly jack of all trades? Yeah, I saw that question. It's a really good question. And it's actually probably a slight misinterpretation of the recommendation of uniting product and marketing. because. Mm-hmm. You have a cross-functional team, but you have uh, functional specialists within mm-hmm. that team. So, ah. so basically, at scale, what these best growth teams have is like if you look at like Lyft or Pinterest, right? They have like growth teams on each product, uh-huh. and they'll have like a product manager. They'll have a handful of full-stack engineers. Mm-hmm. They'll have a couple of designers to help mm-hmm. with the UI UX. They might have like a marketing person to yeah. help with like you know ad copy or copy within a product or email copy or whatever. If it's like a B2B orientation, they might have a customer success manager. So that's usually like I'm missing uh, someone. They could have, oh, data scientists or analysts would be a big deal because these are very data-driven organizations. Yeah. So that that might be the team. And those are specialists, right? right? So they're not like jack of all trades. Now, to your point, you don't end up there, you don't start there as a seed-funded business mm-hmm. doing growth. Like when you start growth and you've raised like a million dollars, your growth team might be like the CEO running the team, yeah. one engineer and one marketer <laughs> or one engineer, one designer, one marketer, or one engineer who has di- design capabilities and one. So in that case, like you're doing a lot of different jobs. Like the marketer might be uh-huh. pulled in to do some of the, di- you know, the data analyst stuff, et cetera. So you will have more of a jack of all trade people, but you know, you, it's usually like at the bare minimum, a product manager that's that's usually the CEO, a full stack engineer that maybe has some design skills, and a marketer who also is very analytical. Okay? Uh-huh. Then as you get it into series A and you start building up, mm-hmm. you'll specialize a bit more. You'll have mm-hmm. a product manager, you have a couple of full stack engineers, mm-hmm. you'll have a couple of designers, you have a, a marketer, you have a data analyst, data scientist. Mm-hmm. Now, it does bring up an interesting point, Pierce, that what these best in class growth organizations do is yeah. they specialize their engineering team and product team by roadmap or what they often call core product uh-huh. and growth. So they have a team like you go, you're either an engineer that works on building the core product, like the roadmap and 
like stuff that the users will see, or yeah. you're an engineer that only works on optimizing the current product to improve growth. And uh -huh. a lot of engineering and product leaders will say that those engineer types are different. Mm -hmm. like, like roadmap engineers, core product engineers like to know what they're going to be doing for the next month. Right. Like they're going to be, they're going to be writing this functionality. They're going through really, you know, clean code processes. They're mm -hmm. just like, they have time to optimize it for speed. They're like, you know, it's just like, I don't want to say waterfall, but it's a little more of like an organized roadmap approach mm -hmm. versus on the growth side, they're like obsessed with rapid change and pace and experimentation. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes at the expense of like really clean code and fast code. Like it could be improved later, mm -hmm. but they're just really obsessed with that funnel and the pace of experimentation. Wow. Thank you so much for like correcting my interpretation on there and actually educating. No, it was a great me. question. I mean, Pierce, I bet you like, I bet so many people had that question when, when mm -hmm. you asked it. So I'm glad you did. Thank you. Thank you. So to like do a quick recap, because I know you have to be someplace else uh, soon. What are two key takeaways that you'd like our listeners to have from this episode? Yeah, I would say like create your growth team to be cross-functional with both product engineering mm -hmm. plus marketing capabilities. Okay. And number two, set them up to be a very data-driven, rapid experimentation organization that focuses on the North Star. And that North Star evolves as we make progress through those four sequences. I think if you can do that, mm -hmm. then you're operating like top five percent from in the startup ecosystem from what i see nice thanks it's short and sweet also mark i'm 100 percent sure people would like to hear more from you so what's the best way for them to reach you i'm pretty active on linkedin mm -hmm. um so you can go there and then um as you mentioned pierce we've got a couple opportunities at stage two capital right mm -hmm. now so Real quick, Stage 2 Capital is the first venture capital firm that's run and backed by sales, marketing, and growth leaders. Um, uh -huh. So we have the executives from all, most of the top software companies in the world, like Snowflake mm -hmm. and Asana and Atlassian and Salesforce and SAP and Drift and LinkedIn, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And we're, we, you know, there's 300 of them that band together to support the next generation of entrepreneurs. And... Um, so if you're if you're an early stage startup pre Series A, then we'd love to hear from you. If you're really early, like just hitting your first revenue, uh, we actually have an accelerator that's open right now. Go to Market Accelerator. That's ten week course that we'll be running this summer, and we give a hundred thousand dollars to you. And the instructors are like you know the founding executives at like Zoom and and you know the we're early president at Salesforce and uh, one of the Snowflake executives. You know, mm -hmm. so it's like it's just exposure to like the companies I think many of us aspire to be. Um, so if you want to go to stage2.capital, you can go and check some of those resources out. All right. Thank you so much again, Mark. Thank you for guesting. Also, the registration for the makeover is also open. So secure you and your uh, team seat to get started on your product-led growth journey. So uh, again, that was Mark Roberge. And thank you for joining us. You have a great day. 
Thank you for listening to the Product-Led Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with a colleague or friends you know who might benefit. We are always looking at which episodes get the most listens so we know which content to create more of. So if you want more of this particular type of content or style of episode, please share it out. And in return, here's your selfish reason to do this. Uh, We will definitely create more content just like this episode. And if that's not your style, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell us your favorite part about this podcast. I personally read every single one of these reviews and it gives me more ideas on what content we should do more of. Happy growing.